think it's safe to say that in life, we go through seasons of confidence and doubt. For some, it probably feels like doubt is more prevalent than confidence. It's also quite possible that doubt grows as we get older, as we become more aware of our failure and our sin and our inadequacy. And when we're in a season of doubt, it is hard, difficult to make decisions. See, that's the natural result of doubt, is it's hard to decide, it's hard to take action. We wonder, is that next step the right step? When we doubt someone, we find it difficult to trust them. Can I rely upon this person? Here's some examples of decisions that become challenging when doubt is present. Should I try out for the baseball or football or volleyball team? What shoes should I wear with this outfit? See, I like the way these look, but man, those are way more comfortable. Should I apply at Chick-fil-A or Dutch Bros? Like that? <laughs> Chick-fil-A? Okay. Where should we go out to eat? Chick-fil-A or Dutch Bros? Should I ask this woman to marry me? What if she says no? Guys, if you're unsure, don't ask. Should we have kids? I don't feel like I'm prepared to have children. You never are. How many kids should we have? Are we open to adopting? Uh, should we pull the trigger and buy a house? Which of these two used cars will last longer? Or if you doubt, which one will break down first? Life is really hard. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Is God real? Does He really love me? Or is it simply that I want someone to love me? See, these are all good questions. They're laced with doubt. And you can imagine that the more doubt someone has about the situation, the more difficult it is to answer a question or to make a decision, sometimes to even think straight. And see, this morning I believe God designed us to be in this passage, this Sunday, in this location, because He wants us to have no doubt in our minds of His love for us. That's why we're here. No doubt about His love for us. So how about we pick up this morning 
near the end of the passage where Jason had us last week effectively uncovered. So look with me in your Bibles, John chapter 7. We're actually going to look at verse 37 quickly because it matters for today. John 7 verse 37 says, On the last day of the feast. Got to say, wait a second, what feast? Does it really matter what feast it is? Well, God is an intentional God, and so yes, it does matter. So in case you missed it over the last couple of weeks, the feast in reference is the Feast of Booths. Most say, okay, so what? Does that sound familiar to anyone? Like you've heard it sometime, but you really don't know what it means? Yeah. See, the Feast of Booze, or in Hebrew, Sukkot, was the last celebration of the fall festivals. It took place at the end of the growing season for crops. Just so you know, in the Middle East, crops are not corn and wheat. It's grapes and olives, but it did take place near the end of September. So it's about this time of year. And Sukkot was a feast where the Israelites expressed thanksgiving and gratitude to God for what He had provided them. That was part one. But part two was begging God to provide lots of rain that the next year would also have a strong harvest. That's the feast. It was designed to help the Israelites remember what their ancestors had experienced as they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered Canaan. And so it's called the Feast of Booze because they effectively lived like nomads for a week. And so as we come to verse 53, we find... They went each to his own house. So the feast has ended. But see, in between there, there's this little parenthetical statement in many Bibles. What's it say? Earliest manuscripts do not include John 7:53 through 8:11. Well, that's interesting. That's not what you expect to find in God's Word. A couple of months ago, at one of our last elders' meetings at the Chapel Hills Drive location, Jason mentioned to me that he was looking forward to how I'd be handling this passage, given it starts that way. I love you, brother. Now, he may have said it tongue-in-cheek, and while he may not have placed me specifically to preach this, I am fairly confident that he did not place himself here to preach this. <laughs> See, a couple of years ago, we had the privilege of having Dr. White with us for an apologetics conference. Some of you may remember that time. But what you probably don't remember is that during that conference, he mentioned his effective dismissal of this passage. Well, the reason I remember it so distinctly is because I had already included this passage in the next Sunday's message, which he was going to be in attendance at. Kind of awkward. 
See, it was precarious in that here's Dr. White, a trusted scholar who has forgotten more about Scripture than I probably will ever know, who understands languages better than I could ever imagine, who effectively was dismissing this passage. And I had to make a decision. I'm go- am I going to include it tomorrow where he's going to be in attendance? Or am I going to submit to fear of man? I had to think twice what I was going to do. And my response to Jason a couple of months ago was no different than the rationale I used when I found myself in that precarious situation. I still hold to that rationale today. As a church, we believe that the Bible is both inerrant and infallible. It is inerrant in that there's no error in the original manuscript. It's infallible in that it will not fail to achieve its purpose. Friends, the Bible that I am teaching from, the one that I can read without glasses, and the one that's in your hands can be trusted without question. Now, why can I say that when there's this little thing that says the earliest manuscripts did not include? Well, when it comes to modern-day Bible translations, the King James had 54 trusted scholars. The NASB also had 54. When the NIV became a translation, it expanded to over 100 trusted scholars, as did the New King James. Why they had to go from 54 to over 100, I'm not 100% sure. And yes, the ESV also had more than a hundred. Apart from the message, which only had one translator, yes, one, it was not designed to be a Bible for public consumption. And there's a reason why we don't use it for exegesis of the text. Most of our versions today have been prayerfully scoured over for accuracy by hundreds of trusted scholars. And yet, they did not strike it from the record. If hundreds of scholars still attest that this belongs here, even though it may not be included in some of the earliest manuscripts, I liken it to official replay. Unless you have indisputable evidence that it can be overturned, it's just going to stand. I'm going to trust it as it's here, and I'm going to trust that it's for us this morning. I hold that this passage has been preserved by God for at least 1,600 years, potentially 1,800 years, and is still important for us today, full stop. If you have a differing opinion, I can appreciate that. Dr. White did. My advisor in seminary did on the committee for the ESV, but still attests that it belongs there even though it's not included in earliest manuscripts. But if you do have a differing opinion, it would truly be a joy to hear why, just not now, 
not right after the message, but my number is in the back of the bulletin. Text me. We can have coffee. Okay? So, now that that's aside, God gave us this book, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, to reveal Himself to His people as He wanted to reveal Himself. And He gave us this passage today to reveal Himself to His people. And I believe that most of the people in this room are His people. It's the joy of having a small body as we know you. And though we cannot know with absolute certainty, I do believe that most of you are His children. You're heirs to the throne, not because of how good you are, because I know you. Not because of what you've done, or who you are, or the family you were raised in, but simply because of who Jesus is and what He came to do. So God has preserved this passage so that there's no doubt about His character, that there's no doubt about His love for us. See, when you look at this passage, you will see that it is absolutely consistent with the heart of the Savior. What's interesting is that in Psalms 39, we read that man is like a fleeting shadow. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? And yet here in John 8, we're going to find the Savior who is so concerned about man, who he described as being like a fleeting shadow, is that he intentionally goes out his way to stand up to religious authorities and to provide distinct love and care for him. See, the Savior stands up for the vulnerable. He lived compassionately. He loved unequivocally. And this account is a simple, easy-to-understand account that highlights the depth of His love. See, later in this book, chapter 12, John says that Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And so, if this is when it occurred it is likely this account was in their minds as Jesus was making that statement. So now that we understand the context, let's dig into the meat of the passage. Verse 53, they went each to his own house. That statement is significant. Why? Because as we've talked about during the Feast of Booze, the Israelites gave up the comforts of their homes in order to commemorate God's salvation. They lived in these small, temporary shelters covered with thatched roofs of palms and other plants for a week. You might say, hey, that's not bad in fall. It's not bad in fall in Colorado. It is still hot. They gave up the comforts of their home. It served as a reminder that in order to be redeemed, the people of the Lord must surrender certain things. See, during their wilderness experience, they had to give up self-reliance and selfishness to depend upon the Lord. 
we too today, to be redeemed, must learn to give up self-reliance and selfishness and depend upon Him. We must turn from our idols and the comforts of our sin. And so when we read, they went each to his own house, the natural outworking of that is to ask yourself, am I willing to turn from my own comfort, from my own idols and my own sin to worship the Lord? Now, turning from idols is fairly self-explanatory. It makes sense. But stepping aside from comforts, which may have unawarely become idolatrous, may not be as easy to understand. So let me try to put this in place for 20th century America. Here's some comforts that could potentially become idolatrous in that they prevent worship. A desire for a permanent facility, not having to set up every week. Hey, you know what? That's too much work. I'd rather go somewhere else where it's permanent. Music the way you like it. More hymns, less hymns. More a cappella singing, more instruments. Yeah, I don't like the music. A more robust children's program. Less children's programs. Shorter messages. Lo well, nobody probably wants longer messages. <laughs> Coffee in the foyer. A shorter drive to our facility. I actually like a longer drive because it makes it easier. You might ask, how are these sinful? They are sinful when they prevent you from worshiping because you've placed them higher than God Himself. So I ask you again, am I willing to turn from my own comfort and my own idol and my own sin to worship the Lord? So now that the feast is over, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus didn't have a house of his own. Nowhere in Scripture do we find that Jesus had a place to live. It actually is pretty explicit. In Isaiah, he had no place to rest his head. In other places in Scripture, when Jesus goes up to the mountain, it means something significant was going to happen, and it does. But this time, John clarifies that Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Why? Well, for some, they hear Mount of Olives, and they're not 100% sure what that means or what it signifies. That's okay. That's why I'm here. The Mount of Olives was a place where Jesus ascends into heaven, Acts 1, verse 12, the last place he was at on earth. The Mount of Olives is also where Jesus predicted things associated with the end times, referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And there's a whole bunch of other things that happened on the Mount of Olives. But instead of saying going up to the mountain, 
John clarifies he went up to the Mount of Olives. And then in verse 2 it says, Jesus comes to the temple. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. See, friends, what we're doing here this morning is a pattern of worship that's been going on for millennia. The teacher and the people gather in the same spot. In this case, Jesus sits down. I like that idea better than standing here. But you've got to figure that if a guy without a house that doesn't have a place to lay his head needs to sit down to teach, it's probably more than a 45 or 50 minute sermon. Probably an all-day event. It says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Well, that's interesting because they're appealing to the law once again. Jason talked about it last week. The Pharisees and the religious leaders regularly appealed to Scripture. So they ask him, so what do you say? They're trying to compare Jesus with the law. Now, is that not ironic to anybody? Like, Jesus is the law the Word of God. He is the Word made flesh. And then John says, hey, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, see, clearly he didn't respond right away. And his lack of response frustrated them. Often my lack of response frustrates people. I'm a processor. Thinking through what needs to be said. But they continued, they pestered. No patience. It says, finally, he stood up. So he's sitting and teaching. And now he stands up and takes a position of authority. Why? Because he met them where they were at. They brought in this woman. Likely they are standing there. He's going to meet them where they're at. And he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. Now friends, don't get caught up wondering what he wrote on the ground. Just a plain reading of the text makes it clear that writing on the ground wasn't what caused the scribes and the Pharisees to leave. Look with me again, verse 8. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, period. But when they heard it, what did they hear? 
his finger in the dirt? No. When they heard the word of God spoken. It says they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. See, they knew better. (laughs) The older ones were more aware of their own sin. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. It's because it was Jesus' spoken word that caused them to evaluate themselves. See, the truth of the word of God revealed their sin. So they could not cast judgment. The truth of God's word still is designed to reveal sin So we do not cast judgment. Listen how the only sinless one responds to the woman caught in adultery. Verse 10. Jesus stood up, again, met her where she's at. That's such a beautiful depiction of the Savior. Wherever we are, whether we're sitting, whether we're standing, whether we're lying prostrate on the ground, He meets us where we're at. And He stands up and says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. God gave us this book to reveal himself to his people. God's preserved this passage to reveal himself to us. See, Jesus loves people. Jesus loves broken, hurting, abandoned, wayward, sin-filled people. Just like you and me. Jesus loves his people in a way that we could never imagine. And he's done more than we could ever imagine to prove it to us. Now here's what's interesting about that is that broken, hurting, abandoned, wayward, sin-filled people will do anything they can to feel better about themselves. Here, they attempted to humiliate a woman to prove that they knew more than Jesus did about the law. But see, Jesus always prevails. No matter what man tries to do to defame, to demean, to mock, to scorn the Savior, Jesus always prevails. The Apostle Paul in his letter to church in Rome, chapter 8, verse 1, says, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, it wasn't just then. That's still the case now. No matter what the enemy may bring to mind, no matter what 
people around you might accuse you of. There is nothing that the Savior doesn't already know about. And He always responds the same way if you are in Him. Neither do I condemn you. Now from the onset this morning, I claim that this entire passage has a single purpose. It's that He wants to leave us no doubt of His love for us. So, I think 753 through 811 is pretty clear. But if you still have doubt in your mind that maybe that doesn't belong there, again, text me. We can have that conversation. Let's look at verse 12. See, as the passage continues, he's going to repeat exactly the same account without the story. Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you, you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Now see, Jesus says that he's the light of the world. Modern-day America, we hear this phrase a lot. It's kind of Christianese. We sing it. But what does it mean? It's actually only used a few times in Scripture, which means this likely was a new saying for them. Minds are like, what are you talking about? See, Jesus then clarifies what he means. See, those who follow him, those who put their trust in him as Savior, are able to see things differently than the rest of the world. Because we have the light of life. And later in this chapter, verse 31, Jesus offers freedom... And we find that as the light, not only does he offer freedom, but then in chapter 9, it says Jesus offers sight to the blind. Again, we can see things differently. But see, sadly, as we see in this passage, the Pharisees are so opposed to him that they reject his offer of freedom and hope and are effectively blinded by the light. So in verse 15, Jesus continues, giving greater clarity. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So he's saying that those who judge in this world judge according to the flesh, but he judges no one. See, friends, that's not his purpose for coming. Already shared Jesus' statement later in John. 
We know that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We know that he came to save sinners. Now consider how this played out even in one of the most darkest moments of history as Jesus is crucified. There Jesus hangs on a cross with two criminals, one on each side. Luke 23, verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, is there anything wrong with that statement? He came to save the world. It's the heart behind the statement. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That is the love of Jesus on display for a watching world. See, when the world despises and mocks and rails against Him, He responds in love to those who see Him as He is. We see it in the thief on the cross. We see it in the woman caught in adultery. It is simply the characteristic of Jesus' life, and that means we can count on it. But see, don't miss the underlying point. The adulterous woman didn't deny her guilt. One thief on the cross didn't deny his guilt. See, he readily admitted he was getting what he deserved. And yet out of compassion, Jesus rescued and delivered and redeemed him. And the same is true today. If there's an area of your life that is in need of redemption, you have a redeemer. If there's an area of life in need of rescue, there is a rescuer. He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. And while all things are in submission to Him, He does not condemn. Verse 17. I love the first three words. In your law. He doesn't say in the law as they did. He says, in your law. It is written that the testimony of two people is true. For I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. As these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. 
Now, Josh is going to deal with the whole treasury importance next week. Grateful for him taking that. But he finishes this discussion by appealing to a particular statute in Jewish law to establish the case for his divine origin. He meets them where they're at. Even when where they're at is not perfectly true, he meets them where they're at. That is the love of the Savior on display. Because no matter where you at, that's where he'll meet you. This is what we must wrestle with this morning. Who is Jesus? See, in the account of the adulterous woman, the scribes and the Pharisees bring this charge to try to understand who he is. He then says, hey, you guys have this statute in your law that says this is how you know if something is true. Both my father and I say it's true. Now that's a really hard statement to hear because how are they going to find out from the father? I, I imagine they had to be ticked. Just think about it. What happens if they deny the father? They deny everything that they've built their case on. They know that a Messiah is promised. They cannot deny that. What they're trying to do is deny He is who He said He is. And all He says is, hey, if you knew me, you'd know the Father. And if you knew the Father, you'd know me. question is posed to you. Who's Jesus for you? Ask yourself, do I see him as the Pharisees and the scribes? Do I view him with contempt? Are there things about Jesus that I don't like that I say, yeah, I don't want that part? Or do I see him as he really is, as the only son of the Father, God incarnate? See, when we see him as the Pharisees and the scribes, we will doubt his love for us. It's the best indication of how you really think about Jesus. See, when you doubt it's not that you need your mind redirected. You need your heart restored. This morning is not a mental exercise, it's a heart exercise. Ask yourself, do I doubt God's love for me?
And let me be a little bit more specific. In what ways in my life do I doubt God's love for me? Because until we're called home to glory, there will always be doubt. There will always be wondering if what he said is true. There will always be this question, yeah, I got all that, uh, but I don't understand that. Friends, you will never understand it all. And it's because we can't understand it all that we will doubt. And the only thing that will overcome doubt is a heart that's united with His. Do you need encouragement of His great love for you? Or, more appropriately, in what area do you need encouragement of His great love for you? Are you walking through something where you're only willing to trust Him with part of your need? Brothers and sisters, Jesus loves you with an infinite amount of love. He desires the very best for you. See, what's best for you is to cast all your cares upon Him. What's best for you is to learn to depend wholly on Him and not on yourself. What's best for you is to be fully satisfied in the Savior. He casts no condemnation on you if you are willing to fear the Lord. Close with verse 11. Jesus said to the woman, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. I don't know about you, but that's a hard statement to read. Like, I can't even make it off this stage without sinning. It's kind of like the be holy as I am holy statement. So why is it that the Savior can look a woman in the eye Remember, he stood up to meet her where she's at. How can a Savior look a woman in the eye and say, go and sin no more? He sees a broken, abandoned, 
woman who's aware of her sin. He doesn't see and judge as we judge. He doesn't judge by actions. He judges according to the heart. We can't comprehend that. See, when he says go and sin no more, I believe it's consistent to say that he's saying go and your sin will be counted no more. Just as the thief on the cross. Because that's the heart of the Savior. Your sin will be counted no more. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I recognize that there are times that in my own mind I test you. There are times that I don't like your truth. I don't like the things that require me to set aside my own comfort. I am in many ways just like the scribe and the Pharisee. Lord, each of us is like the scribe and the Pharisee and each of us is like the adulterous woman. We choose to satisfy self. We choose to gratify our own desire. Lord, I pray that this morning would serve as an encouragement that we need not gratify our own desire. That just as the Israelites could set aside a period of time to leave the comforts of their own home, Lord, I pray that we would have the courage and the strength and the resolve to set aside our sinful desires and the idols that prevent us from worshiping you. Help us to see you as you are, not as we think you should be. Lord, I imagine that woman left relieved. The burden that she had been carrying brought to light, yet receiving no condemnation. Lord, that is the picture for each of us. The burden that we carry, it comes to light and we are set free. Thank you for redeeming us. Lord, restore our soul. Let our minds be directed to you. Let our hearts overfill with joy. Let our response this morning be one of gratitude and encouragement and asking that you would bring the rain, that our lives would reflect your grace, that you would be placed on display 
and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.